The material discussed and presented in this podcast is for general information only and any reliance on such material is done at your own risk. This podcast should not be considered professional advice. Reference to any information, product, process, service, or organization does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by pros. Views expressed by guests are their own, and their appearance on the podcast does not imply an endorsement by pros of them or any entity they represent. Views expressed by pros employees are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views, standards, or policies of pros or any of its directors, officers, employees, or shareholders. Welcome to Interface, a podcast where we connect technology and culture through conversation. Interface is brought to you by Empower at Pros. Empower is dedicated to attracting, developing, and retaining Black talent at Pros. Pros helps people and companies outperform by enabling smarter selling in the digital economy. I'm your host, Jennifer Plummer, and I'm joined with my co-hosts, Sierra and Maddie. And today, our guest is Charlotte Clark, co-founder and CTO of Foresight. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Um, I really love the things I was reading about you um, on link. You're on LinkedIn and Twitter, your company and yourself um, about um, this startup ecosystem and how you're kind of focusing on that and um, using AI to change the way startups are evaluated and funded by removing bias and automated due diligence. I think that's all awesome. I can't wait to talk about it. You also went to MIT. Um, in computer science. So we, we like to start the podcast just kind of to hear your, your story of how you got into technology. Um, so yeah, please share with us, you know, what, what brought you into the field? Yeah, um, it's kind of funny, I think, because uh, technology was always a part of my childhood and a part of my schooling. Um, I was part of robotics. I was doing coding, like, I think before the whole wave of like trying to get more kids and, and women into STEM. Um, so I always kind of had coding and, and development and software like in my life. And it like didn't even really fully compute that like this was like a career field um, until really late in high school. Um, I, as I was thinking about colleges, I was either going to be a like a languages major or I was going to take it like technical. Um, and so I kind of applied to both because at the time I really wasn't sure. Um, but um, MIT and, and being a robotics engineer kind of won out um, by the time I went into college. Um, and so that's really kind of uh, what has taken me to this point. Um, while at MIT, I like didn't think about being anything else, doing anything else. Like there was a lot of other classes that I liked taking, but I like never thought about changing, um, which I think now in hindsight, I'm glad. I, I didn't and I stuck with it. But at the time I was like, why didn't I like, <laughs> do I even really like this? Or is this just something that I'm like doing? So um, I think entrepreneurship has kind of helped bring me back to a space where I'm really grateful for the background that I have and for the skills that I'm using. And especially being in a space where you can create good from technology um, has now found the, the niche that I really love being in. Fantastic. So how did you, because it, it seems like after you graduated, you're kind of in a software engineering role, but then, you know, it started spreading out into more, um, you know, leadership and 
entrepreneurship. Um, so what, what sparked that or like kind of how did you um, transition into those roles? Yeah, um, so I was at a large technology company um, six years in total three or four years in, I was having a lot of friends doing entrepreneurial pursuits, just hearing about their journeys. And it like dawned on me that a lot of entrepreneurs like don't set out to be entrepreneurs. It's very much like something happens that kind of kicks them into this path. And it was really interesting to me to hear them talk about them kind of jumping into it and then kind of forgetting all of the things that you kind of need to prepare before you get into business. Um, and so that's really, I think, what kind of started me on this, like, oh, this would be really cool to help out entrepreneurs to, um, you know, use technology and, and to find ways to kind of um, surround them with the right tools. And so that was really why I decided to start thinking kind of outside of the software development space. I think as an engineer, it's great, but like you're very much heads down, like, you know, people give you things and you got to write it and then you keep moving, but there's never any time to like look up and be like, why are we building this? And like, you know, what is the end goal? Um, and so I spent about a year trying to figure out like, what did that mean? And what did that look like? Um, and product management was, I think, the way in which the technology, but also understanding like the bigger picture came into focus for me. Um, unfortunately, the company I was working at didn't have a way to move me into product or into a role that was more product related. Um, so that was really the reason why I started to think outside of the company I was in. Um, I didn't technically have enough skills to like jump into a product management role. Um, and I was still thinking a lot about entrepreneurship and like how to start helping entrepreneurs. Um, so uh, during the pandemic, actually, I decided that I was going to quit my job at some point during that year and like freelance, which is insane. Um, but I was like really, really like dedicated to the fact that I wanted to be a product person, I wanted to help entrepreneurs. Um, and so part of that was potentially getting another job or it was, you know, starting um, a small business myself. So um, in March, I, March of 2020, I basically went through an incubator program, like learned a lot about more about entrepreneurship, like me being an entrepreneur. Um, and then it just so happened that in November of 2020, I got a job offer as a, a CTO for an early stage startup. Um, I was doing consulting, um, telling a lot of founders about like why being in technology and like helping them as a founder was really important for what they were trying to build for like really early stage startups. Um, and then I found a company that was willing to pay me, have me leave my job and do it. And so um, it was kind of perfect timing, um, but it really kind of allowed me to now move into this space where um, I was working directly with founders. Um, they also allowed me to continue doing consulting on the side. So I was doing both part-time is kind of the best ideal situation. Um, and so at that point I was like, cool, like I don't wanna be in corporate anymore. I've got a, a way out and um, I did it. That's, that's awesome. And, and taking the jump is, I think some people would think, oh, it's kind of, you know, scary thing to do. Um, but it sounds like you kind of just take the leap and, um, um, you know, it worked out for you. How, 
essential do you think the incubator incubator program you were in was to your success is that something you would recommend oh my thunder jenny i was like i want to know more about the incubator experience (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's okay great um, minds great minds (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think that it helped um only because there was so much content um near i think it was two or three months long maybe the last month in we were pitching constantly um and it's funny now because i do a lot of podcasts and i like try to put myself in conferences and i like talking but at the time i was like the worst pitcher i like my voice was monotone i was just like like i had memorized everything so i was just like in my mind just like going through the script um and so i think what was really great about it was that um I was absorbing all of this for myself, but also knowing that at the time I was going to be working with entrepreneurs. So it was like both thinking about like, how do I become a great entrepreneur, but also how do I understand what other entrepreneurs are going through? Um, And also having kind of that product interest, it really helped to be in that, like, I'm a customer, but I'm also trying to know my customers. Um, And so I think it was a really great program. outside of that program, I was like, all right, like I spent three months learning all of this. Like I might as well spend the next three months getting myself ready to then launch um, the platform and and to launch the consulting business around what I was trying to build. Um, So I think it definitely helped to kind of kickstart the like nature of being an entrepreneur, doing things really quickly. I think if I hadn't been in that incubator, it would have taken me a really, really long time. I think I'm a recovering perfectionist. So I really probably would have like attempted to make things really perfect. Um, But it's, it's great because at this point I've like rebranded myself three or four times and um, I have changed my website multiple times right now. I don't have a website. And so um, I think that's just part of the entrepreneur process is just like re figuring out and relearning like what makes the most sense for you. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's really why you just kind of have to start and see where it goes. Um, And I think the incubator helped to make that kind of possible is like, how, how do I, how can I get from point A to point B as quick as possible? Lots of pivoting. It it sounds like what, what's been the biggest roadblocks that you've come up in your kind of all these transitions as have you, as you've navigated Um, I think it's also kind of been myself, like, I think part of it is really about figuring out internally, how do I feel about what I'm doing, who I'm working with. Um, I've had some times where I've, you know, worked with clients and things did not go well. And I had to like reflect on, you know, am I setting up the right boundaries for myself and, in, in how I work with clients? Is it the clients that are reaching out to me? Like what, what is that kind of disconnect? And so um, I think a lot of it has just been kind of like reflecting and figuring out like, how do I now move forward? Um, how do I change how I, what I'm offering? How do I change um, the structure in which I'm offering or the structure in which I'm operating in? So I think that has just been the hardest part is just that like reflection piece seen a lot of entrepreneurs who like, you know, are so much focused on all the outside factors of things that are happening to them. 
Um, but I think there's like a level of like really being honest with yourself about like, you know, if you get consistently the same clients and they're consistently te- uh, treating you wrong, at some point you kind of realize that like whatever you're writing in your contract, however you're like presenting yourself is making them think that they can take advantage of you, for example. So I think there's like a lot of that where you just kind of have to figure out how do I make this best for myself? And then how do I project that out? Okay, I re- that's really interesting. Right before I left for New Zealand, I ran into this um, thought or as a, on a podcast that if you change your mindset to being 100% accountable for everything that happens in your life, then things stop happening to you and you kind of start happening to life. So it sounds kind of very similar to what you're saying. Yeah. It's cool. Yeah. I think we could all take that advice. <laughs> Entrepreneur or not, it's just being 100% accountable. Yeah, it's it's crazy because I, um, I'll i talk to friends about like non-entrepreneur related things and like my brain will start to like pull things that I've done as an entrepreneur and like move it into that. I think there's a lot of ways in which those two things transfer um, that are really great and then a lot of ways that it doesn't transfer at all. Um, my sister at one point was a freelancer. She's now working in corporate. And there was a little bit of that of like her starting to bring her entrepreneurial like mindset into corporate. But those two things are completely different. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, like knowing that the way that you're bringing yourself to work and all of that is, you know, going to affect the way in which people work with you and clients and coworkers and all of that. So, um, so you went through the incubator. Do you, are you, do you have like a group of people that you're working with or like kind of what is your support system that you're, that you're leveraging today to kind of get through? Like if you have to, like during that self-reflection, you know, kind of, you know, batting around, like, you know, do I need to pivot or not? Like, like what kind of support systems do you have? Yeah, um, at Foresight, I thankfully have a co-founder um, who is also the CEO. Her name's Janae. Um, she was the person who started the idea of Foresight um, and then brought me on. And so um, it's really great to have her not just as like a co-founder, but um, as part of that support. I think as you become part of a founding team of a startup, especially if you're the only technical person on that team, it feels like a lot of the burden falls onto you of like this product. It's, I guess it's double-edged. It's like this product doesn't get built without me, but at the same time, like if this product isn't built, it's my fault. Um, so there's definitely been a little bit of, I don't, I wouldn't say imposter syndrome, but I would say like incredible pressure of like, I'm building something people are going to be actually using. And like, um, that means that like people are waiting on me to like get this built. Um, And so she's just been really great at articulating that, like, it's not like she's saying this thing happens and then I have to build it. We're both in a two-way conversation about what is priority. Um, When we have a deadline, like, what, from my perspective, what can be built and what can we talk about? Um, And so that's been a really great help. Um, And then most of my other friends are entrepreneurial or entrepreneur adjacent, so really just you know, continuing to be in this mindset, but having other people in the mindset who also understand what you're going through um, has also been really helpful because uh, there's just things that just happen, I think, as 
an entrepreneur and if you don't have a full-time job and all of these things that like sometimes it's really hard for me to articulate like the space I'm in to people who are in full-time jobs and they've got this the level of security that like at this point I don't have just yet um okay I, w- I want to get more into foresight but I want to take a little step back to MIT because I don't I don't know many people that went to MIT so I just want to acknowledge that that is awesome and seeing someone that looks like uh, you know us that that went to that institution um can you uh kind of you know what steps did you did you take to get into that program was it great grades was it was there any other kind of outreach programs that were involved and what was your experience there yeah um so there were really no programs um i guess i had maybe a slightly different edge than a lot of people who went to mit my grandfather um, went to MIT. He also worked at MIT. I don't know how much of that was maybe a part of the decision or not, but um, sometimes I think about it. I'm like, it might have, but maybe it didn't. I don't know. Um, so that was definitely something that I think when I thought about going to MIT, that was the piece of it that was like, oh, it'd be so cool to go to a place where, you know, someone in my family went. Um, but really, there was no other programming. Uh, before I got in. Uh, once I did get in, though, there was a uh, like pre-orientation program that I went through um, that was also centered around uh, electrical engineering and computer science as their major. Um, was in that, and it was just cool to be on campus. Um, I'm not from Kansas City originally. I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which in my mind is still kind of synonymous. It's, you know, a little bit smaller of a city, so like going to Boston was like kind of like a, oh, wow, I'm like really in it, in it. So I think having that ability to be on campus without all of the people there just yet um, was helpful just to kind of get my bearings. Um, other than that, uh, I don't know that I would say good grades was part of it. I think, um, I think I had good enough grades. I was not anywhere near the top of my class. I did go to a small private school. Um, There were maybe three other people who were a few years ahead of me who like got into MIT and um, their grades were like absolutely perfect. So I think um, as I was getting there, I was like, wow. So like all of their grades are like (laughs) up here and I'm like in the middle. there's a process as you're getting into MIT, you're able to interview with an MIT alum and they basically help write your report. Um, I'm currently one of those people who do it. And so I'm, I'm wondering if that maybe helped color the application and, and not just be like, there's this girl who, you know, her grades are fine and she's yeah. report and, yeah. you know, like everyone else, she wants to be an engineer. Um, so maybe that also helped, but it's, it's honestly, um, mystified still. Um, really not sure how I got there, but um, Charlotte, it's okay if we're saying it's Grandpa's legacy. We'll take it. No, it's because you're a special person. Well, you're a special person. They saw something in you, and I think it's notable that you're kind of giving back in that way by fulfilling that um, yeah coaching role, or would you say the um, the person that's helping yeah. with the report reports because. Yeah, well, at least the universities I'm familiar with don't have that rigorous of a, a, a application process. So that may be intimidating. And 
for our listeners, uh, you know, I just want people to know, like, okay, it might be extra steps, but, and you might be in the middle of the pack or you may not think that there's, people are going to see something in you, but if that's an aspiration that you have, go for it, right? Um, Absolutely. Yeah, there's nothing, there's no negative to that. It's, you know, try it out and see, see how it goes. Yeah, I think probably the thing that I've realized now um, I mean, I think I had a lot of imposter syndrome while I was at MIT, like a few years after I graduated, I was still very much like, I don't really know. I still don't really know how I made it through here. Um, people ask me all the time, you know, like, oh, wasn't it amazing? And I was like, I blacked out every <laughs> class. I have no idea what happened. I can tell you I had a great time <laughs> with friends and at parties, but like, don't ask me anything about what I did at school. Um, but I think again, kind of being an entrepreneur, there's still a lot of things that um, at MIT I was doing, you know, late nights, like coding at all hours, like really thinking through problems. And I think um, that now I'm realizing that a lot of the skills I had pre-MIT just kind of like helped sharpen them at MIT. So like coming out of it, I'm like, oh, now I can see where the problem solving, the like kind of having um, no guardrails, like how do you like structure not only yourself but whatever you're trying to build um and there are a lot of things now that i'm like oh i think that if i was like an entrepreneur at mit maybe everything would have clicked but either way i think um mit and some of those other like really big schools i i wonder kind of help hone the skills you already have and then just like make you better you know outside of school um, versus like, you know, you don't, you didn't have it before and, you know, MIT gave me all these things and then I went out into the world and was successful. Yeah. So that, that's a good transition to what does a CTO do and, and, um, specifically, you know, what is your role at Foresight? Yes. So, um, chief technology officer. No acronym. Yeah, so <laughs> <laughs> uh, the chief technology officer um, is, I think, has a lot of nuances. I think a lot of non-technical founders assume that uh, CTOs are like building and just building and building. Um, but as the highest like person on the like I guess totem of technology. There's so much more of like um, long-term vision, like how does this product and technology um, scale and grow in five years versus like in these next three months? Um, what kind of like decisions can we make now that kind of help take that long-term? Um, and there's a, a lot of that that happens. And then there is also a lot of, of like, you know, heads down, how am I building this? Um, in my opinion, I think that uh, chief technology officers need to have some product understanding. Um, I've seen a lot of people who do pick an engineer and they're like, you're the CTO, like go do CTO things. Um, and I think that that's really hard because as an engineer, your focus is generally on how do I make this code as best as possible? How shiny is it? How like how fast it works and like, look, I did this in three lines of code. Look at how amazing that is. Um, and it's hard to have that time and space in a startup because uh, 
no one cares about the technology being shiny. They only care that it works, that it's like doing um, the right things it's supposed to be doing, that customers are happy. And so um, it's been really fun now um, as a CTO and building the product, I have like both sides of my brain kind of like battling it out. Like the engineering side of my brain is like, oh, but we could refactor this. And I'm like, stop, does it work? Okay, we need to move on. So I think there's like a lot of things you got to really be working on in order um, to short term have it work. And then long term, you know, how does it grow and scale and continue to work for hundreds of thousands of customers? Let's pause for one second. Yeah. Yeah. Someone's phone is vibrating on the table, it's getting picked up. Jenny, I'm looking at you. I can, yeah. This will be edited out. <laughs> Three, two, one, click. I definitely relate to um, being being on a, a, a software team is kind of, you know, really we're focusing on the like techno- technological advancements, but really the communication to customers is like, well, you know, how does this, how does it help us, you know, and having, being able to tell that story um, is so essential to just you know for the team success even though it's a technical team you still need to be able to to, to leadership or to pro- product management they they need to tell the story of okay this this technical thing that we did you know in you know in our database or, or on the cloud translates to customers being able to do x y and z um so yeah i, I can see how you're saying your, your CTO needs to be plugged in. Um, they need to understand the technical side, but they they need to be plugged in and be that that conduit to kind of translate that into this is how it's going to help our customers and help our business. Um, What's so the biggest us- difference? Oh, sorry. What's the biggest difference between a chief product officer and a chief technology officer? That is a really great question. Um, in my opinion. Uh, I think that they should be the same, but um, I know a lot of people in a lot of startups, um, it's like the chief technology officer and the chief product officer, almost like not battling, but they're, they have very similar roles and it's almost like you kind of need one to have a little bit more of an edge than the other. So there, it kind of depends in which organization, but like, for example, if the chief product officer is like the decision maker, that means that the company is more product led than than technology led but i think um, probably for the majority i would say that chief technology officers have an edge um which then means that like there's they're thinking more as far as like the technology side of things how does this work how does this um, scale all of that and then the product part of it almost comes secondary um but i think both of them like need to be technically in one person because sometimes priorities have to just be, does it work? Are customers satisfied? And then technology becomes second. Um, so it, it kind of depends, but I can see in a lot of instances where the, the product you're building is very much technology centered, where it's like, like blockchain or um, has like AI or machine learning and those things, I can see how there's a little bit more of that leaning on the technology because those things drive how the product works. So it really is like all over the place at this point. In my opinion, I really think that whatever title it is, you have to both 
have the understanding of the technology and of the product. Um, but probably because startups, when they're really early start, their automatic is like, I, we need a technical person as a CTO. Um, and so that is usually the person that's usually that person who's building the product, helping to hire the team, et cetera. And then that person grows to be like the CTO and then, then maybe there's a CPO, but they come later. And then the, tech, the, the startup is basically technology focused first and then product second. So, so tell us about Foresight um, and, and what, you know, we kind of touched upon the, you know, it's, it's for the startup, startup ecosystem, but kind of go into more of, um, you know, what, what is, you know, what problem are you trying to solve or, you know, what are you offering to, um, your users? Yeah. So, um, we're solving a really acute problem right now in the startup space, which is funding. Um, I think that a lot of founders will agree that like funding is kind of like the bane of their existence, but it's also like makes or breaks whether or not they, you know, continue and become successful or if they, you know, have to die and, and uh, shutter their doors. Um, and right now, uh, so many founders and a lot, of, I would say, of the ecosystem is so focused on VC funding. How do you pitch? How do you, uh, you know, get ready for due diligence? How do you create your data room? Like if you were to Google startup funding, all of the articles are going to be about VC. It's going to be, you know, three things you need to pitch or like, what does your elevator pitch need to look like? Or how do you, you know, set up a meeting with a VC? And so there's just so much focus currently right now on VC funding, but um, only like 1% of startups get funded. And those numbers are lower and sadder if you're an underestimated founder, if you're black or brown, um, if you're pitching to VCs who look nothing like you, who, you know, don't see that you have MIT as part of your um, schooling and, you know, they kind of pass on you. Um, so with everyone being kind of driven into VC funding, but VC funding is not a viable option for um, a lot of founders, it's then like, okay, like, how do I now start to get funding? I um, mean, so this is the problem that Foresight is solving. Um, originally, what we wanted to build was a platform that kind of helped founders really understand, like, are they viable in a way that a VC will say yes? Like, um, a lot of that right now as a founder is you just got to pitch to hundreds of VCs. Uh, VCs don't often give you feedback. So then you're like, mostly confused as to why is a VC saying no? Why have 100 VCs said no? Um, and there's a lot of that that kind of happens now where founders don't get that feedback unless you know, a VC takes pity on them or they have an investor friend and that investor friend's able to tell them like, your pitch is wrong or you know, there's no opportunity here or you, you haven't acknowledged that you have a major risk. Um, uh, yes, VC is a venture capitalist. Um, they are basically people who get funded by large corporations, um, you'll see venture capitalists raise like 50 million, $100 million funds. And a lot of those monies are uh, private equity amounts. They could be private people giving them $10 million. And then basically the pool of money a venture capitalist has, and now they're like portioning out parts of that funding to startups. 
Um, and a lot of that for a venture capitalist and for the partners behind the scenes is they want to get a return on that investment. So for them, they're trying to figure out like, how do I give um, $500,000, a million dollars, maybe to a startup with the assumption that that startup is going to uh, exit and they're going to make a billion dollars. So um, kind of the theory around venture capitalists and that funding model is I'm going to make 10 investments and I'm going to hope that one of them is going to make me a billion dollars and basically return on all the other 10. And then the likelihood is that the other nine are going to fail. So um, venture capitalist as like an institution is like inherently uh, not for the benefit of the founder. It's for the benefit of all the people who, you know, have given millions of dollars and, and want to make that million into a hundred million. And, and as they are already rich, they just, you know, continue getting richer. So um, that is right now where a lot of the funding is coming from. And as a founder, you're not really necessarily worried about all of that. You just want to build your company. You want to make it successful, but you know, generally a lot of founders want to make a difference. And right now it's really kind of VC or bust. Um, a lot of founders who decide that they don't want to get venture capital funds um, will then bootstrap. And by bootstrap or self-funding, they're turning to getting revenue really early. And then they're trying to get enough revenue that it builds and sustains their business. Um, and then there's a couple of other options, but you know, it really just depends on the founder's awareness. And so Foresight at this point has realized that um, there are banks and there are um, other lending institutions who also kind of want to get into this space um, because of the pandemic and the way that they, the government basically was like, oh, small businesses are having trouble. You know, let's give them hundreds of millions of dollars and, you know, you know, mm -hmm. PPP loans and all of that. Um, there's now been more government initiatives to get more money deployed into small businesses and into startups. And the way to do that is through banks. Um, but right now, banks don't really necessarily have the understanding or the like infrastructure to then be, you know, having small businesses and especially tech startups apply. So that's really the kind of the now the smaller problem that we've realized is acutely needed. Um, there's a lot of banks right now, uh, probably in headlines. There's been a lot of initiatives that have come out where Chase or JP Morgan has gotten a hundred million and they're like, yeah, we're going to start funding startups. And um, sometimes they partner with VCs, uh, sometimes they partner with accelerator programs um, to basically start to portion out that money. Um, but for banks, for CDFIs and other uh, community led lending institutions, um, if they are not able to partner with a VC or with an accelerator, they have no idea how they are able to deploy that money. So um, what MVP of Foresight is currently looking like is building that platform for them. So um, we are going to be kind of a dual-sided marketplace-like platform currently. Um, lenders are going to use us. Um, they're going to be able to invite founders and smaller businesses into our platform. We're creating a system that will allow us to gather that information that a founder has and then process it and provide it in a way that makes a lot of sense for lenders. Um, and so that'll help them get a better inside look of what a founder and what their business looks like. 
and hopefully will help them to deploy more capital and more um, funding out to small businesses and founders. Can I ask what your y'all's revenue model is then? Yeah, um, we'll be taking like a platform fee. So um, for, let's just say you're a founder and you want a $100,000 loan, um, you apply through a bank and the bank might say, cool, but I can only do like 20K. Um, and so that's also another model is loan syndication. So then that bank might be able to be like, okay, I'm going to get four other banks and we're going to split the risk across five different people. We're all going to put in 20K um, and then we'll take a portion of that. I believe it's like 1%-ish of that amount. And then knowing that like, I think the number might be $800 billion like across the next five years um, of funding that like all banks are trying to deploy. Um, you know, a portion of that will hopefully be coming through Foresight and then a small portion of that will be coming through directly to us. Um, but that's only like the first phase. Uh, the second phase will be founders coming on the platform and being able to apply to loans. And then there will also kind of be that like revenue coming from the bank being like, I want to be visible to founders or an accelerator um, or a grant program that's like, I, I want to be visible. And so there's going to also be membership fees, one-time kind of premium fees as well. So, so is there still a pitch process? Is this kind of providing a platform to, I guess, equalize the pitch process? Yeah, so um, I guess what we're trying to do is kind of replace a little bit of the pitch. That would maybe be the long-term goal is that you're not necessarily pitching anymore, but like you're able to like put all of the information you would already have in a pitch in a place that it's now, um, I don't want to say digestible, but like it's in a, and it's in a way that you're able to be like, okay, like this is the addressable market. These are the things that you're saying. This is kind of the market conditions. Um, I think another big issue is that uh, a lot of investors just take founders at their word. Um, there might be some like due diligence in the back where they're trying to verify that everything is correct, but hmm. still at the same time, like the founder says it, they're like, oh, well, they must have done the research and, you know, that's fine. Um, mm -hmm. And so part of what we're trying to do is provide that verification that like, yes, like a founder said that, but it's also like we've checked it out. It makes sense. Um, this is especially, I think, true in market sizing and then also in financial projections. Like I don't know that a lot of founders like acutely know how to create a financial projection. Um, a lot of them outsource it out and it comes back and they're just like, here, here's my financials. And um, so there's a lot of that happening. And I think part of what we're trying to build is to make sure that like a founder did say this, but we can verify on the back end that, that they said it and it's true. Um, and, you know, here's additional information we have for you. This all That's makes awesome. sense. And I'm kind of surprised this doesn't exist already. <laughs> It's almost like a sense of security on both sides. It's, you know, the founder is, you know, putting their information out there and it, and like you said, kind of eliminates the pitch process, but it also gives a security to the lenders to say, okay, this has been vetted, not just by the founder, but this platform is also validating this information. So it's still a risk, but a little bit more of a calculated risk here because some information has been validated. So that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the biggest thing, 
a lot of people who hear what we're building are very much like, oh, so you're basically going to deny and approve people. And it's like, no, we're just like another tool that kind of helps provide that information. And like, we have no awareness of the, of the, you know, are they going to approve? Are they going to die? Deny? I don't think we also want that. I don't want that at response. That's still up to the, that's up to the lenders to still decide based on the information that you're providing them. Yes. Yes. So, but it's more just like kind of providing that more educated under the hood view of what is this business actually doing? And um, part of it will be real-time data. Um, we're hoping to kind of plug into um, your bank account and um, potentially other sources to continue to verify um, what is being told. And then, then another part of it is really understanding the market conditions of like, you know, for example, blockchain, like where are blockchain startups in the last 18 months? Um, and this is really for, you know, the very first check type of startups. So like if you're in the pre-product, pre-revenue stage, and you're hoping to get some funding, like it's kind of important to know in the last 18 months, you know, what have valuations been, how much money has actually been raised in that space. Um, and that's another thing is that I think founders are, um, I mean, they're all visionaries and they're wonderful and amazing, but I think there's also like a level of like, how much of the stuff you're telling that is like epic is actually relevant. Like you can talk about unicorns and you can talk about amazing startups five, six years out, but like, where were they, you know, in the time and space that you're in of, you know, you started in a year, you know, what does that progress look like? So that's really where the um, artificial intelligence and machine learning and real-time data sources come into place is really being able to um, add structure to like, what does a pre-seed, pre-revenue, pre-product startup actually look like? And like, how do we keep what you're saying like within the bounds of like what makes the most sense for you to be at that stage a year, a year and a half in? Is Foresight targeting their, um, targeting founders from uh, underrepresented, uh, uh, did I say that word right? Underrepresented, there, there it is. <laughs> groups or is it any founder who's looking for funding um come over to foresight we're willing to help yeah it's it's any founder um but you know knowing that it's being built by two black women founders you know like we're acutely aware that we don't want this tool to continue to hinder underrepresented founders so i think for us it's always going to be around the lens of like you know how do we get more black people black brown people funded but you know, it's not going to only be, you know, how yeah. do we get you funded. So okay. um, that is really where we're trying to take the bias out of it. Um, ideally, long term, we'd love to be able to um, provide an assessment of like, what kind of founder, what kind of founding team is this? But like, also knowing that, like, we don't want you to put in your school and that gets you more points. Or, right. you know, we want to make sure that we're able to be like, have you been an entrepreneur since you were smaller? Like, you know, like, I think there's a lot of those types of stories that um, black and brown founders tell as ways to kind of add credibility to how they're building. And I think that that's all really still valid because if you've been an entrepreneur since 12 and you've always tried to figure out, you know, ways to create businesses that makes you more resilient to the fact that you're now doing it maybe in a larger stage at a grander standpoint. Um, and so that should count as like a plus versus, you know, you know, you didn't go to MIT, like that's fine, but you know, I went to MIT and I, I was not an entrepreneur since I was 12. So I think those two diff, have two different strengths 
Um, and I would say no minuses from those two kind of data points. So do you have researchers or product management? Who, who's who's dis, dis determining what levers that you're using to kind of, I don't know if there's a score at the end, like, you know, like your credit score or something like that. That's like, this is probably a good investment. Um, how, what role is that that's, that's kind of feeding that those, those different um, slices in predetermined? Yeah. Um, so we do have an algorithm. The algorithm is more so um, scoring based on the progress that you've made. And part of that is um, within kind of our view of, okay, let me back up. So valuation is like a big thing for startups. Um, as a startup, when you're starting out, your valuation, like as a concept is really to help un help people quantify the progress that you've made and like what is the value of that progress and that is because you know if another startup was to pop up today you know like could they surpass you so that's really kind of one way in which valuation um, is used and so right now what we're trying to score is quantifying that progress in a way that makes sense across all startups that are on this way to make progress. So there is some scoring there, um, but it's really around like, how do we weigh things you've done in technology? How do we weigh things and information and like team building that you've done in marketing and technology and product and understanding what your market is, those types of things. Um, whereas now when we're talking about valuation, it's kind of like a gut check or there's other methods where, you know, people ask you questions and they like plus or minus hundreds of thousands of dollars. And then that's how they give you a valuation. Um, so there is scoring there, but it's more trying to, again, remove some bias from how do we quantify, um, what your value is. And then the second part of that is that it's also kind of that market understanding. So there is a score currently, but then the score is like a fraction of um, what that max valuation is. So it also continues to depend on your market, what industry you're in, what technologies you're using, um, potentially what business model you're now in, because a lot of those things you can change. You can also continue to make progress and that should potentially increase your That's score. where the real-time um, data points come in. Yes, yes. Validating that the things you said are correct, if it in invalidates it, kind of, you know, pulls you back a little bit because that stuff isn't true. And so, you know, that might mean that you kind of need to review that as progress. Um, so that's where a lot of all of it kind of mixed together. Well, I want to ask, um, I think it's, I think a question that we typically ask people is what, like, what should businesses be doing um, to help Black people in technology? I, I really like the fact that it's kind of built into the core of, like, the service that you're offering. Um, but do you have any, any additional um, thoughts on, um, you know, how can we get more uh, people of color, Black and brown people into technology? 
Yeah, um, I thought really hard about this question because it was definitely something that I didn't have an answer to off the top. But um, as someone who has both been in a corporate environment and I'm also part of a couple of like social Facebook groups where it's consistently um, black women talking about their roles in technology, um, really the consistencies I've seen um, is both like, you know, just kind of like the BS you kind of have to deal with because your manager, you know, is micromanaging you or, or microaggressions or whatever that is. And um, a lot of them, a lot of the posts that I've seen is like, I'm going to tell you this whole situation, like, am I crazy? Or like, you know, is this really happening to me? And in general, everyone's like, it's really happening. But like, here's how, you know, here's how to deal with it, document everything. And like, you know, ask for this and, and give them this. And um, I think, it's amazing because it's, I don't know that it's ever going to go away, but I think that there's like a level of accountability that I would want businesses to start thinking about is like, how do you make this space safe um, for anyone, but really, especially for black people to be in technology? Cause it's not that we don't have the interest. It's just the like bogged downness of being in a corporate environment, like not being able to trust you know, the interactions we're having with people. Um, we're not getting promoted and we're not sure is it actually because of the work we're doing or is it, you know, other politics at play? I think there just has to be a, a different level of accountability for your coworkers, for your manager, for the people above your manager to be able to like bring those things up and like shine light on them because, you know, people are going to continue to leave companies because they don't feel supported. And I'm sure you can create other programs, but if that, you know, process doesn't change, you're going to continue to have them leave. And then the second thing I would say is I think because we've been in a virtual world for so long, um, a lot more people have become entrepreneurial kind of in nature, having a job that has that flexibility and knowing that like we all have lives outside of work and like, how do we, um, either kind of invite some of that in into your work, potentially, you know, three days a week you're in the office and two days you're working from home and there's no like you need to be at your computer at all times and your online button needs to, you know, say you're online and whatever that looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, but it has a little bit more flexibility for people to still love what they're doing at their job, but also love doing things that have nothing to do with their job as well. Yeah. yeah. AKA start a podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, Right. It's just kind of a way to, you know, bringing yourself to work also means saying these are the things I don't, I I, I don't want to work, you know, working nine to five Monday through Friday might not be the best way for me to, to be myself. Um, There's other things that I'm doing that's kind of taking away. I'm, I'm committed to this job, but also I'd like the flexibility to, you know, do this on, on a schedule that works better for me. Yep. Awesome. It's now time for the heat check. The heat check is where the interface crew shares an interesting or hot topic happening in the technology space or black culture. As our guest, Charlotte, I think you actually already sent us a link of something that you're interested in. So Kudos to you, not all of our guests. 
<laughs> are so prepared. Um, feel free to chime in when you feel. Uh, but yeah, you, so actually, since you, you already picked one, why don't you go first? Yeah, um, I think the article I sent was about uh, venture debt kind of becoming more prevalent in the space. I kind of went on a long rant <laughs> about venture capital and like why, you know, it is not inherently great for startups. And so this article um, I shared, I thought was really exciting and really important because it kind of shows the shift of funding and, and ways in which startups can now get funds. Part of that is through debt. So um, venture capitalists in general are giving startups money for a portion of equity. Um, and that means that they're hoping and betting that the startup exits. And that can be that they IPO, it can be that they get like merger and acquisition. But really, it's like a high liquidity event in which the worth of that startup is converted into millions of dollars. Um, and there's a lot of pressure in that because that means that you're expecting to stay in business three, four years um, post getting money. Um, whereas venture debt is another kind of model that potentially means that you just have to pay a loan back, for example, or um, there's other like revenue based um, models where you get a certain amount of money and then across the time you have revenue you're shaving off one percent two percent of your revenues and paying that loan back and so um the sh basically the shift is now instead of trying to be um, a company that you know is worth a hundred million dollars two hundred million dollars a billion dollars you just need to have a sustainable amount of revenue you just need to be building a sustainable business and you're able to pay back you know however much money you um, asked for, um, but now you're, you know, you're still around 10 years, 20 years from now. Um, and so it's really exciting. I, I've met a few different kind of venture capitalists and other investors who are really excited about creating new models of ways to give funding to all different types of founders. Um, but really understanding that like, again, VC is inherently not a, a founder friendly money model and finding other models that like know that you're a founder know that you're building an, an amazing company know that you have employees to support and you don't necessarily need an investor uh like hovering behind you um waiting for you to you know exit but how do we build long-lasting businesses that are really focused on generating revenue and helping their customers and helping you know the people that are employed underneath them and really building amazing businesses that way so, so is venture debt kind of like equivalent or, or similar to I, I'm taking out a, a, like a business loan for my business idea? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's kind of where it's moving more towards is that ability to, it's almost, it's almost like a temporary thing you have and it's not like a long-term, uh, I don't even know what that would be called, but like, yes, yes. Gotcha. Is, is this in line with just like a lot of companies moving away from that growth model to being profitable is what you're saying? Is that why that's happening? So I think the reason that it's happening is uh, sadly not even because of startups. It's because of venture capitalists are 
with the way that the market is happening, um, they're becoming way more conservative about like, do we uh, want to give? Can funds? you explain? The market is going yeah. down. Right? Yeah. So the technology um, space, space, right? Is things are going down? Is that so what you it's mean? it is sadly not even just technology. I think because we're people are very scared we're about to be a recession and like how bad is that recession going to be um how bad is like the market in general like outside of tech like going to be um this is really amazing because uh foresight is a fintech company and i don't know anything about finances but here's me trying to explain how economics work um but from my understanding like because of inflation and the recession um investors are now becoming super like Way more conservative than they were already about like handing money which then means that like for investors they're like oh well i really want to see like how much work you start you've a, you as a startup has been doing um and can that justify me giving you funds so over the last couple of years even though we were in a pandemic um we were not in a recession. A lot of investors were throwing money at startups. And it was also because startups were like, yeah, we're going to be amazing. We're going to, you know, we're going to be the next unicorn. And you hear all these really awesome stats to, you know, throw your way. And that is now coming on like a downturn. So because of this downturn, investors are now like, I don't know that I want to give you funds. And then that means that startups now have to figure out a different way to then fund their businesses. And so that's kind of um, then kind of makes the catalyst of like, okay, what are other ways in which you can get funding? If venture capitalists and investors don't want to give you funding, how does that other piece of it work? Um, and then because knowing that like now there's a shift of, you know, um, I have to pay this money back, that means that revenue has to be generated. So it's almost like a three fold kind of like domino effect. Um, but generally like the way that funding happens shifts startups mindset, which is really unfortunate, but, um, also I think good because really your goal as a startup should always be generating revenue and creating a sustainable business and not trying to get, you know, venture capitalists to give you hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars so that you can continue to build and kind of test and guess. Awesome. Who wants to go next? I can go next. Okay, I'll go next. Um, I was listening to- Thank you. <laughs> I was listening to, let me get the title right. Um, Marketplace Tech um, on the, February 15th, they had a, a article program. The title was um, Big Tech Diversity Efforts Stall as Industries um, Endure Mass Layoffs. So basically, you know, after George Floyd, a lot of companies, you saw a lot of, you know, publishing strategies for diversity, equity, inclusion. It's the ESS report, is that what they're called, Sierra? I ESG. ESG. and kind of kind of making a statement or stamping like this is this is the things that we're doing it to to um, um, to address um, you know bringing making sure you know people of color people from underrepresented group 
military veterans, dis, dis, people with disabilities, LGBT, you know, all the, you know, all the different things and kind of having a, a strategy or a plan about how programs that are going to go. But with all the layoffs that are happening now, you're seeing that the people that are um, running those programs are kind of responsible for making that sure that stuff happens. It's kind of less of a priority now because of, um, you know, the company's downsizing. Um, so it's concerning because um, I, I kind of feel like we made a lot of strides, um, you know, with, with that event. Um, and I'm just hoping I get everything's getting smaller and that's probably naturally going to also get smaller. But I, I hope that, um, that, you know, companies still realize that it's, it's a priority even if, you know, times are struggling. That's kind of when you know you're an ally or, or you know, or committed to something is when times are hard, you, you still kind of find a way to um, make sure that you're accounting for those sorts of things. So um, it was kind of a brief article, but it's something I just wanted to bring up just because of the nature of, of our podcast. It's just, you know, companies out there still um, should be kind of taking into account you know, as you know, reflecting that the as the company gets smaller proportions, you know, hopefully they're not laying off all the black people. <laughs> that would be bad. I don't know. I'm not saying they are, but <laughs> um, at least looking at you know, looking at those data points and making informed decisions as they're downsizing. That kind of reminds me of the um, oh, I forgot what it was. We did training over it. it's like the implicit bias where the, the two people were um, debating on who to promote or whatever it was. And they really thought through it. And they were like, would I think they asked the question, would I consider this person in a different way or whatever it was? And I think that kind of is aligned with what you're saying about like, yeah, you're making the decisions, but there's more to that as well. And as long as you're considering those things and you're very transparent and you're aware, I think it's it's okay to move forward. But if you're not, then you're still making that decision to not decide to not make decisions informed. So Right, right. And I'm just hoping when things bounce back, you know, we don't have to have another you know, national event to remind, yeah. Yeah, to mm-hmm. remind companies that they should be thinking about this always so that, you know, someone's there um, being that champion like, okay, now that, you know, now that we're in a healthier position, maybe we could start reintroducing these things that we had to scale back on. Yeah, I think also like even as a smaller, slightly smaller company, like I think knowing that it probably at some point you're going to have to higher back again, you know, once everything kind of evens out, that like you're continuing to think about the culture internally. Like it's not just like, oh, we laid off a bunch of people. Anyways, you know, like let's keep <laughs> moving. I think there's also a level of like, okay, how do we make this, continue to make this a great place to work? Yeah. And maybe even like just make it a great place to work so that the people you yeah. decide not to lay off like, don't think to like leave. Yeah. Um, but how does that continue to, you know, be part of the change the company's making, regardless of layoffs and regardless of major, you know, national events. Yeah. Absolutely. I guess I'll go. All right, ahead. Sarah. What I will hold on. What's what? your heat check on? What's your heat check on? Minus culture. You know oh, I'm not coming here wait, with anything tech related. Wait, but I I I, I know, I know. I want to know what part. 
because I think I might be jumping on yours as well. So go ahead. I'll take last. Is place it the Super today. Bowl? Is it Super Bowl? It is Super Bowl related. Hey, okay. Look. All right. All right. All right. <laughs> But no one else is, it the same, is it the same? Is it the same? I don't think it's the same thing, but it's the Super Bowl thing. Sierra, I'd love for you to go first, so I can. I, Sierra has the best way of just like kicking doors open, and I I, I love following that energy. So here we go. So yes, my heat check. Thank you, Jenny, um, for coming in with the save for this one. This is the first time we're recording since Super Bowl, whatever number it was, happened two Sundays ago. Um, and, you know, I'm all about promoting black excellence. So Robin Fenty, a.k.a. Rihanna, broke the Internet with her Super Bowl performance. Um, I loved every piece of it. I was having my own personal concert in my living room. My children were looking at me like, what has happened to our mother? And my husband just rolled his eyes like he always does. Um, I was like, whatever, just let me have my 13 minutes. Okay, thank you. Um, congratulations to her on her, her pregnancy announcement and even her Vogue cover with her family <laughs> on it. Um, that has also broken the internet. There's been a lot of conversations about that that we won't get into. Also, Miss Cheryl Lee Ralph coming in with the lift every voice and sing um, at the top of the of the. Oh, I missed um, the beginning. The game. Uh, yes, Miss Cheryl Lee came out, and there were a lot of references on the internet about the Sister Act Two scene where she was telling her daughter that singing is not where it's at, and it's like, oh, look, look at you now. <laughs> And then I have an honorable mention for Mr. Chris Stapleton. He is not black, but he is definitely invited to the barbecue because the way he took us to church with the national anthem, he is just an amazing vocalist. I need you to get on YouTube, Jenny, and listen to Chris right. take us Did to you church. Even watch okay? the Super Bowl? <laughs> I don't yeah. have so I don't have cable. I don't watch sports. Super Bowl is the one game I watch all year and I go the neighborhood has a huge party shout out to Bayview Terrace in Shadow Creek Ranch Pearland um they have a huge party and that's my game and as usual I was late uh for the game so um I missed the beginning stuff uh so I will YouTube that for sure I, YouTube, I already YouTubed all the commercials and the uh <laughs> the uh trailers and stuff but that um, I love Chris Stapleton. I love Cheryl Lee Rasa. I'm going to have to go check those out. Yes. So excellent musical performance. Sometimes they're kind of hit and miss, you know, but all three this time were amazing. Uh, I will so yeah, Google those performances. I, I will say I had anxiety of the people on those platforms because you could see it swaying. And I was like, I'm not a heights person. And that's why I know Rihanna is fearless because you could not... <laughs> You cannot see. I want to see the insurance policy that that was written well, for that. That one year was that when he said and Lady Gaga jumped off. Of yeah. The, so I guess this is Super Bowl performances is a time where artists are like, we're gonna go for it. Oh yeah, I got 13 minutes. I'm doing everything that I possibly can. <laughs> It's a huge thing. Yeah. Yeah. So yes, yeah. shout out to all the performers. Um, I did actually watch the game. It was a great game. And that is a great segue into Maddie Cakes now giving us his heat check. Take it all away. Right. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> Our listeners can't see my background, but it's just nothing but chief stuff. I also put on my Super Bowl champions hat. I'm a big Chiefs fan. Um, 
I, I want to point out there was a segment that happened at right before the Super Bowl um, happened, and they they highlighted Doug Williams, who was the first black quarterback uh, to play in a Super Bowl. And the whole segment was talking about that um, the last Super Bowl between the Eagles and the Chiefs was the very first Super Bowl with two black quarterbacks to play. And th- there was a, a six-minute segment, that would be my heat check, where RG3, he talked about representation and how it matters. And you might not realize it, and I think it happens subconsciously, is when you don't see people in positions, it affects you and it kind of gives you a ceiling and an idea of a ceiling. And um, I just think it was really powerful that they gave him six minutes, or it was like three minutes at the beginning. It was a whole six-minute segment, but it was him and no one else, and it was RG3 talking about the plight. And I think it was really powerful because they were acknowledging an issue and they were giving the person a person that is coming from that group to explain and be front and center. And I was really grateful to see that and to see how whoever, you know, ESPN or the people doing the Super Bowl gave black people the platform to talk about it. And it kind of reminded me of like this podcast and listening to Jenny and, and Sierra talk to Kelsey, you know, when I'm walking around and I can't wait to listen to this episode, just listening to a podcast that gives black people a platform to amplify our voices. It's just like very powerful. And I'm just grateful that we're kind of having that conversation because it's not whether or not it happened or what's happened. It's just the ability to talk about it and kind of move forward together. And yeah, I'm just very grateful that we have the platform and we are, you know, we take some steps forward, take some steps back, but the fact that our voices are, are being heard, it's, it's great. Go Chiefs. Go Chiefs. <laughs> that was a great heat check, Maddie. Yeah, I I also missed that. So I'm going to have to go find that on YouTube as okay, well. I'm with you on that one, Jenny. I missed I missed that one. I'll have to go YouTube. It. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, just it's just tremendously. Um, I think for people that have never been in, in someone's shoes where they just like assume like, oh, I can do anything. But when you... When no one looks at you, it's kind of there's this invisible wall there that's maybe it's the imposter syndrome. It's the, you know, I'm faking it till I make it. And you're and maybe everyone feels like that to some degree, but it's just really kind of gives you a head start to kind of see, okay, that person did it. I can, you know, I can I can see what they've done. I can talk to them. I can hear, I'm listening to their story and I can, you know, follow in that path as well. And take it to the next, you know, to the next level. Absolutely. So, Charlotte, I really enjoyed talking to you. Um, I, I know you sent us some links, but go ahead. Could you go ahead and just kind of share uh, how people can get in touch with you or learn more about Foresight? Yeah, um, I am <clears throat> kind of started to be a social media recluse, but um, you can always find me on LinkedIn. Um, my like at, I guess, is Charlotte dash a dot clark no that's not right it's charlotte dash a dash clark um and then foresight is a website tryforesight.io um we should be tryforesight on instagram and uh yeah i don't remember what other links i sent um but feel free to contact me on linkedin i love connecting with people doing virtual coffees 
Um, I am very busy, but I will <laughs> make time to make a 30-minute virtual coffee with anyone who wants to chat. Um, yeah, stay tuned for Foresight as we're launching in the next year or so. Yes, we're that's very a lot. Excited. Yeah, we're very thank excited. You. Really learned a lot from you today. So thank you again for um, being our guest. Um, thank you to everyone listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, drop us a line at interfacepodcast at pros.com or find us on LinkedIn. Please also rate and review us on whatever platform you are listening from. It also helps the show tremendously. Would love to see your feedback. Um, we want to make the show better. We encourage you to go out and continue this conversation and even start your own. We will meet you back here for the next episode from our career yours. Have a good one.